Kings chapter 17 and stand for the scripture reading, 2 Kings 17, and I'll read beginning in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gazan in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. And they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant which he had made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity, and they became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and worshipped, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. They made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. And they practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And I'll pray. Father, we thank You that as we've already acknowledged through song that You are holy, holy, holy. And that you have redeemed us, God, to be your own possession and to be a holy people set apart for you. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus, which we also have commemorated today, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness and continues to cleanse us, God, as we walk in the light with you and confess our sins. And we thank you, God, for all that you've done to call us out for yourself, to set us apart as your people. And as I pray, as we look at your word, we would truly cherish, God, the blessing and the gift of having a right relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I recall the words um, that are spoken from heaven by those who were martyred on earth during the Great Tribulation. In the book of Revelation chapter 6 verse 10 where those martyrs cry out and say, How long, O Lord? Did you ever hear yourself saying that? How long, O Lord? Holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood 
on those who dwell on the earth. How long, O Lord? And I sometimes wonder how bad does it have to get before God finally judges. Things were very bad in Israel, as we just read, before God brought judgment. We know that God said to Moses when he asked to see God, and God put him in the cleft of the rock, and he passed by in front of him, and the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the God, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. But the first words that he spoke were, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then I think about the various judgments that we see in Scripture and how long God waits before He brings judgment. The one that we're all most familiar with would be the story of Noah and the flood. And God waited and waited and waited until there was only one righteous man left. And God says, now I will judge the earth. Or when Israel was in Egypt... And it got worse and worse and worse until finally God says, it's time to deliver my people. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, really, really, really bad. And it was bad for a long time before God destroyed those two cities, but not before removing Lot and his family. Or the Canaanite nations, so bad even though they had 40 years to prepare for the coming invasion, and all they had to do to prepare was to turn to the Lord. Only we have, we have record of only one woman who did so, Rahab the harlot. Things are pretty bad when all those nations know that judgment is coming and they are powerless, and yet only one turns to the Lord. Or in the days of the Great Tribulation, where the Antichrist is just having free reign on the earth. Millions and millions are being killed by him. And that's why these martyrs crying from heaven, how long, O Lord? We see in each of these judgments, don't we, that the Lord is truly long-suffering. He is much more patient than we would be. My and now, with Israel, Saul was its first king, reigned for 40 years, then David for 40, then Solomon for 40. But since um, Saul became king, 329 years have passed. And Israel is in a very, very bad place. 289 years since David began his reign. And by the way, the United States is 249 years. So we are coming up on the length of time as a nation that we've been around since David was king over his nation and things got this bad. In the context here, over this is Hoshea who is reigning as king in Israel when the Assyrians come and take them captive. 
But his counterpart, when he first became king in Judah, was Ahaz. And he was so bad, he was offering his children as burnt offerings to the false gods. So even Judah is not much better than Israel. And then Hezekiah will come on the throne um, shortly after Ahaz, and Hezekiah will be a good king. In this situation, it is as bad as we can imagine, and we know that it's particularly um, horrendous what's taking place because Israel is God's chosen people, a covenant nation set apart from all the nations to be distinct and holy. And we know in part that it's as bad, even worse than we can imagine, because they had every opportunity to repent, and they didn't. It's like that child that refuses and refuses and refuses, and you go, how do I know that he's so bad? Because I can't tell you how many times I've spanked him, and he just will not conform. Israel... Israel was invaded by the Assyrians actually four times. The first time just for tribute to be paid. And then the next time, captives were taken. And then a third time, captives were taken. And then fourth time, they were just totally destroyed. We know from the Bible that the Assyrians were referred to as the fishermen. And that's because when they took people captive, they would hook them with fish hooks. And string all of them together. And then march them to whatever country they're going to move them off to. Beating them all along the way. And if anyone stumbled, the fish hooks were ripped out of his own flesh and the flesh of everyone that he was connected to. This didn't happen just once, but three times they took captives. You think, this is obstinacy. Talk about flat out rebellion. Even knowing what's coming, they refused to repent. We used to joke about one of my brothers. Um, it seemed like he could never get enough spankings. And he sat right next to my dad at the dinner table. I sat at the furthest end away from my dad for good reason. And my mom, would she was into always, seemed like always, it wasn't always, but at the time it of just getting us to eat things that we would not normally eat. But someday, if we were starving, we might have to eat, like boiled spinach or boiled okra um, or liver. And I'm probably naming things that some of you really cherish, but in our house, we didn't. And I can remember one night it was boiled spinach. Just looks like what you get off the bottom of the river. And um, plop down on our plates, and, and my brother looks at it and says, I'm not eating it. He's sitting right next to my dad. My dad says, go to your room. And he follows him in and spanks him. We can all hear it, small house. He's howling back there. The neighbors can hear it. Comes and sits down again, looks at it and says, I'm still not eating it. Go to your room. Spanks him again. Third time. Still not going to eat it. Three times. Just incredibly bullheaded. We nicknamed, we nicknamed him Rawhide. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, I would wait until 
Everybody was exasperated with my brother, and I would ask for seconds. And when the blow came back down to me, I would scoop what was on my plate and put it back in the bowl. (laughs) Or sometimes the door next to me would happen to open up and the dog would come in and everything's going to the dog. But in seriousness, it's, it's not funny to be just obstinate and rebellious against God. Israel was to be a light to the nations. They had been delivered by the miraculous power of God from Egypt. No other nation had experienced what they experienced. The goodness of God, sustained for 40 years in the wilderness just miraculously. Come into Canaan and and God is again providing for them, defeating the enemies and in every way proving himself be God. They firsthand experienced the goodness of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, and now the loving kindness of God. And nevertheless, they would rather be like the world than be distinct. So this list of things here, these reasons why God has dispersed the people, brought judgment upon them, reads like um, a list of charges in a courtroom. And it starts with this, the very general, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And then 18 charges follow that, specific things that they did. They feared other gods. Well, we're not guilty of that. And a god, an idol, is simply whatever we go to, what we run to, for help or comfort. And if there is a go-to, the first thing that I run to for help or comfort, and it is not God, it is an idol. So we may not have statues and carvings in our house that we bow down to, but what is our first go-to? Every time that Patsy and I um, are involved in premarital counseling, this is one of the things that we talk about. You need to know with the person you're about to marry that they're go-to. You are absolutely convinced that this person you're about to wed, that when the chips are down, they go to Jesus without hesitation. Because anything else is an idol. It says they walked in the customs of the nations, meaning they had lost all distinctiveness. There was not a dime's difference between Israel and any other nations around them. They didn't act different, didn't look different, didn't talk different. How are they going to reach those nations when they are exactly like them? God pulled them out of the world as it were. At His Hill, I'm teaching through Matthew right now with the students, and we're just getting into the Sermon on the Mount. And after the Beatitudes, the first thing Jesus says is, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what we are. That's what Israel was. Israel was raised up to be the salt and light of the world to all the nations. They didn't want to be salt and light. It's costly to be salt and light. Makes you different. We're herd creatures. Nobody likes to stand out. We want to be just like everybody else. We're afraid of being different. 
Just think back to COVID. How difficult it was perhaps to maybe do, do differently than everybody else was doing. But this is much more than that. I read a, 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 about a test that was done. I forget the context of where it was done, but, but the psychologists wanted to see what would happen if you took 12 people and gave them a very, very simple test. You just put three lines of different links on a piece of paper and tell 12 people to tell the test giver which was the longest line. Simple. There were clearly different links. Well, what the... Twelfth person didn't know was that the other 11 people had been told to lie about which is the longest line. And they all agreed to say the shortest line was the longest line. So what was being tested was the response of the twelfth person when he sees 11 people before him say the shortest line is the longest line. What's he going to do? And the results were that 80 to 90 percent of the time, the twelfth person agrees with the other 11 even though he knows it's wrong, because he doesn't want to be the one guy that's different. And then they said, we're going to have one other person in the group of 11 say the truth before we come to, to person 12. And one, other, one person will say the truth. Person number 12 now is only 40% of the time going to go with the 10 rather than with the 1. And so the point is how the power of one person standing up against the rest can have a big influence on those who also are fearful about standing up for what is true. It's hard being salt in light. Once in a while, praise God for when it just, it's, it's glorious. I was sitting in the restaurant, like I often do in comfort, been doing it for years, various restaurants. I'll go down and get an iced tea and, and do my work. And over the years, different things, times, one place, occasionally one of the waitresses would come and sit down and say, I have a, Bi a Bible question. I have a God question. Can you help me with it? Because they'd see me sitting there with my Bible. One lady came over one time to me and my discipleship group guys and said, do you take prayer requests? Yeah, love to pray for you. And just this week, a waitress came over, and, and she'd been waiting on me for now for, for a while and bringing my eyes to you and refills. And, and she stands there, and, and she said, um, do you know someone who can help me understand the Bible who speaks Spanish? And so in those times, you think, thank you, God, for being a light in the world. Just reading your Bible in a public place, and people take notice. But a lot of times, persecution comes with being salt and light. That's why the last beatitude prior to you are salt and light is, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Because when we live out the beatitudes, we will be different. Because there's nothing in the beatitudes that is remotely similar to this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> When's the world tell you that? Blessed are the gentle. They shall inherit the earth. When does the world tell you that? Blessed are the peacemakers. And then, well, that's a good thing to be, you know, get you persecuted. To be a person who wants others to know Jesus and to know Jesus is the answer to their life. So blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is not typically fun to be light and salt. 
We're told in the Gospels that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Yet he is the light of men. But it says that men love darkness rather than light. Darkness hates light. So we can understand why Israel did not want to be a distinct people. Even today, you can hear Jewish people say, if we're the chosen, God choose someone else. Right? Because of the cost that comes with being God's chosen. They did things secretly. And John, John says in 1 John chapter 1, walk in the light with God who is light, and you will have fellowship with Him and with one another. That the one who walks in the darkness and says he is walking with God is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There are times when, I've made mention of this before, when I, I can't tell Patsy everything, those are, are rare and very unique times. Oftentimes it's because maybe somebody has said something about her that is hurtful. So it would not be wise for me to say, man, you won't believe what they said about you. <laughs> no. Or sometimes it might be because of something that's happened to me, and I don't want her to take offense. But by and large, our lives are open books before each other. And I know, after these many years of marriage, that just like with the Lord, if there is something that I am doing that I don't, don't want my wife to know about, I am walking in darkness. If there is something I'm doing that if somebody were to step in and see that and I would be embarrassed or want to hide, I'm walking in darkness. And to fellowship with God, I must walk in the light. And to fellowship truly with other people in the, in the deepest of intimacy and vulnerability, there has to be walking in the light with God. There is no place for secrets in the Christian life. Israel was an open religion. The only exception would have been with the select group of priests who were they, they alone were allowed into the temple proper. But even then, everybody knew what was going on. There were no secret rituals in the temple. Everything was laid out. This is what happens, and it is prescribed, and nothing but this happens in the temple. So there were things that not everybody was eligible to do, but there was no secrecy, there was no darkness. That is unique among world religions. Judaism and Christianity, no secrets whatsoever. If you know any Mormons... Ask them if they have any secrets about their faith. It is secrets from beginning to end. And they're not the only ones. It always strikes me as a little interesting that when you drive by a Masonic Lodge or a Jehovah's Witness Church, there are no windows. But Christians have always been famous for having lots of windows, letting the light in. We have nothing to hide. Let the light come in. But you don't see that in other faiths. They did things secretly. 
They built high places. They set for them sacred pillars. They burned incense. In the summary of that, they did evil things. Each of those things God had said no. They did it anyway. In the next line, provoking the Lord. You ever been around a provoker? Man, just needling you, needling and pushing and pushing until finally you just blow up. Provoking the Lord. They served idols. They did not listen. You can see the intensity of that. This is not accidental. They purposely did not listen. They stiffened their neck. It's in the singular. Because collectively as a nation, like one person stiff-necked. And that is nothing but pride. And then the next line, they did not believe. Last Sunday, we looked at the connection between pride and unbelief. We do not believe because of pride. They rejected his statutes. Again, intensive. This is not accidental. They followed vanity. And they became vain. Vanity is emptiness, what's worthless. And that's what they've become, empty and worthless. They forsook all the commandments. They didn't leave any that weren't broken. They made images. And now we really get to the crescendo of all this, the climax of it, where it says in verse 17, they made their children pass through the fire. They made their sons and daughters pass through the fire and they practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil. How long can a nation continue? Can a people continue who are sacrificing their children in the name of worship? We saw when we've, early on in our study of First and Second Kings that God is not a God who punishes children for the sins of their father. Never. But Satan is. Every time I hear somebody that in, in power that says they're doing it for the children, I just go, that is a lie. They're doing it for themselves. Just look how the children suffer. And you know they're not doing it for the children. We are not a country that are literally burning our children alive. But children are still very much treated as an inconvenience. Years ago, and I mean 30 years ago, a good friend of mine preached a message at a large church in San Antonio about childbearing. And his family have four, but he just did the research. And he talked about how that generation, which is my generation, four is average. The next generation is basically two. And now in the United States and in every industrialized country in the Western world, we all have a negative birth rate. Every nation has a less than 2% birth rate. So that's a negative birth rate. 
But it used to be in the generation before it was four, it was six, and then eight, and then 10 to 12. So in less than 100 years, this country has gone from having an average of eight to 10 children per family to less than two. And we're the most prosperous country that has ever lived. So how can you say it's because we can't afford the children when we're more prosperous than any people have ever been in the history of the world? So this friend of mine preached this sermon. It was quite a powerful sermon. That the reason we're not having children by and large is because we count them in, in inconvenience. And then when we do have them, more and more we're not the ones raising them. But other people are. How can that go well? Sacrificing our children for our own ambitions. I have to be careful here, I understand, because we're also living in a time when even on a two-income family, most young families cannot afford a home. I get it. But I also know firsthand experience that raising children is not as expensive as what the world wants to say. It doesn't cost all that much to raise a child. And some of you in this room that have six, eight, ten kids, you know. It just doesn't cost all that much. So we worry about college. They don't have to go to college. And if they do, I have to believe that God will take care of them. God wants them in college. It's not just a platitude. God will take care of them. He has with our children. He did with me personally. Went through seminary. Had $1,000 when I entered seminary. And it wasn't cheap. And graduated by God's grace with no debt. On time. And I look back at those years and say, look what God did. Only God can take the credit. And my dad says, amen. It was a miracle how the Lord provided. Children are a gift from God. Why would you put your gift in the fire to be burned? But they did. Pure evil. They practiced divination. Witchcraft. It's a way to, to find knowledge, maybe on, on decisions that you should make, by searching for something other than God. It's looking to something other than God for the answers to life. Horoscopes or divination. But again, there's other ways that we do this. We can approach our Bibles like it's a diviner's book. You know, just, Lord, just let the wind blow the page and wherever it stops, that's what I'm supposed to do. Really? Your mind isn't even being in gear. It's not even being utilized. The passage that you've just looked at, you're ripping it out of its context. It doesn't re remotely mean what you're trying to make it mean. You're just approaching the Bible like it's a book of witchcraft. Like it's a book of horoscopes. Rather than coming to God in His Word and listening for His voice through His Word. They sold themselves to do evil. We would hope that the text would have said 
they yielded themselves completely to the Lord God. That they loved Him with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, all their might. Because that was the command of God. To sell yourselves to love God. But they sold themselves to do evil. And then one more time, provoking Him. So when you read this list of charges against Israel, especially when you get to they were burning their children to their false gods, to demons, I think we have to come to the conclusion that God was fully justified in kicking them off the land. You wonder why did God wait this long? It's because He is full of compassion and loving kindness. God remained faithful to His people throughout all that they were doing. He is truly long-suffering and patient. Israel was without excuse, and they had every opportunity to repent and believe. But there comes a point when God says, no more, no more. There are times when families come to that point with their own children. When they have to say, you're on your own. No more. Hard. And God has now come to this point with his children, the children of Israel. Did it have to be this way? Was it inevitable? Chapter 18 is the contrast with King Hezekiah. And these four statements are made about him in chapter 18. In verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord. In verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. In verse 6, he clung to the Lord. In verse 7, and the Lord was with him. That should have been the, what was true of Israel. Did right in the sight of the Lord, trusted in the Lord, clung to the Lord, and the Lord was with him. Clearly, the humility of Hezekiah is being contrasted with the pride and arrogance of Israel. Assyria was an arrogant country themselves. They saw no place for God. They're going to come against Hezekiah, and the right-hand man of the king is going to mock Israel and say to Judah and say, You think your God can save you? No God has anywhere saved Israel. Has been saved, saved the people from the king of Assyria. You're next. And Hezekiah took the letter and he went in before God and he spread it out and he said, God, read what these men have said. They are mocking you, God, not us. Truly, it, it is right, God, that no other God has defended them and delivered them, but you are not other gods. You are the one true God. And for your name's sake, O oh God, Deliver us from the Assyrians. And though Israel was a complete victim to the Assyrians, nothing they could do, powerless, you've got a good man on his knees saying, Lord, we are powerless and we are helpless. But you are God. Help us for your namesake. And the Lord said, done. And that night, the angel of the Lord, who happens to be the pre-incarnate Jesus, showed up and slaughtered 185,000 men. And Nebuchadnezzar went back to, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the, the um, Sennacherib went back to Assyria. And while he was kneeling in the, God of his, in the house of his God, two of his sons assassinated him. 
puny problem to God. God fully ready to defend his people if they will just humble themselves. Israel was arrogant. Isaiah 10.5 calls Assyria the rod of God's anger. It says that they will be judged by God. And in fact, they were during Hezekiah's reign. It happens that, speaking of Hezekiah, that when he ran into this problem with Assyria, a major problem, huge army, they've already defeated Israel, now they're banging on Judah's door, that Hezekiah cried out to God as he did, and God answered him through Isaiah, the one that wrote that big book, 66 chapters. So I went through, I just thought, that's interesting, Hezekiah and um, Hoshea and Isaiah are all contemporaries. They're living at the same time. So what else does Isaiah have to say about Assyria and Israel? And I saw these things. I'm just going to step through them. Number one, judgment of Israel, God's nation, is meant to put the fear of God into the rest of the world. Isaiah 26.9 says, For when the earth experiences thy judgments, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Number two, Israel deserved God's judgment. Isaiah 9.17, The Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Lamentations 3.39, why should any living mortal or man offer complaint in view of his sins? The iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment. This is all from Leviticus. And then, to be specific, the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. The third lesson, looking at Isaiah, is God does not want to judge. It says in Isaiah that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Israel is God's witness to the, to the world of himself. And this is again why God is, is so upset, so provoked by what they've done, because God has called Israel out to be his people, a witness of him to the world. And Isaiah says, he formed you, he redeemed you, he called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are honored, and I love you. I am with you. I have created you, created you for my glory. You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those are all verses from Isaiah 43 and 44. We know that in the future there is yet a, 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 there, a salvation for Israel. Israel will yet be saved. Isaiah 25 says, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. And Paul says in Romans 11.26, All Israel will yet be saved. We know from Isaiah that though God judges, He does not forsake forever. 
Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. My loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. And then in the 66th chapter of Isaiah, To this one I look, says the Lord, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's all I'm looking for, God says. Someone to be humble and contrite and tremble at my word. Israel was none of those things, and God was fully justified to disperse them, even using the wicked Assyrians. The land received its rest, and the people abandoned their idols. God's judgment accomplished its purpose. Through all of this, God had such high standards and high hopes, and high calling for Israel. But Israel was not a redeemed people. They'd been redeemed from Israel, from Egypt, I know that, but they were not a saved nation. Never were. Paul is very clear on this, as well as the Old Testament. God only ever had a remnant that believed within Israel. Nonetheless, they were his covenant people. And they were to be a holy people who listened to him, feared him, and obeyed him. And they weren't even saved. They will be, but they weren't. Do you see the application? We are also God's covenant people. We are not Israel, but we are in a covenant relationship with God. And we are saved. We have the Holy Spirit. And if God expects an unregenerate people to listen to Him, follow Him, fear Him, obey Him, to be holy, how much more so for us? The body of Christ is not Israel, but we are His covenant people. And it is for us, too, a terrifying thing to think that we would fall into the hands of the living God. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing, he's speaking to Christians, to fall into the hands of the living God. And in the verses before that, if we go on sinning willfully, like Israel did. Remember another place in 1 Corinthians, in fact, chapter 10, Paul says, these things happen to Israel as an example for us. So if we, like Israel, continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's not saying you lose your salvation, but he says there's nothing standing between you and judgment. Because that's what the sacrifices of sins did, did it not? It, forest it, it forestalled God's judgment. And he says, and if we live willfully, and there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for willful sin, then why do you think that we will not experience the discipline of God? 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled, trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And we are his people. So this is a tragic, sad story of what happened to Israel. People ask, why does God let suffering go for so long? Because he is a God full of compassion and loving kindness and mercy. He goes much longer in enduring, our, enduring the sin of this world than you or I would. But he also goes a long time in enduring our sin. And I read this passage and it's just been a real conviction for me. Renewed conviction. And I trust it is for each of us. This isn't just about them. These things happen to Israel as an example for us. We are God's covenant people. We have been called out to be a wholly distinct people. It comes with a price. We understand that. But what price? The world is going to hate us? So what? The world could kill us? So what? The world has never done anything for us. The Bible tells us that it is our enemy. It wants our destruction. It is not our friend. It is God who loves us and gave His Son for us. It is God who has removed our sin and is absolutely committed to us with covenant faithfulness. It is God that we can trust to be good to us and to never lie to us. Not this world. Why would we turn our backs on the one who loves us so much? That he gave his son for us. And is absolutely committed to us. And when we sin, by God's grace, and we all do, we come to God and just say, Thank you, God, for the blood of Jesus which cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And we can go right back to the Lord. And Israel could have at any moment. And so can we. I pray that in June, as long as God tarries, we grow in holiness and righteousness. And we be a distinct people, the salt and light of this world that we are until Jesus comes again. I'll pray. Lord, thank you um, for your ways. Thank you that you are God who is full of loving kindness, compassion, and mercy. And we thank you that you are also a just God. But in judgment, you remember mercy. You're so good. There is no one, God, who loves us like you do. You know the darkness in our souls. I pray, God, that we would come to the light and not retreat into that darkness. That we would walk with you in humility, with a contrite heart. That's all you're looking for. 
and that we would tremble at your word. In Jesus' name, amen.